Masterpieces of Mystery, Story 5, The Beast with Five Fingers, by William F. Harvey, Part 2. Chapter 3 Whatever it was, said Eustace to Saunders on the following morning, I propose that we drop the subject. There's nothing to keep us here for the next ten days. We'll motor up to the lakes and get some climbing. And see nobody all day and sit bored to death with each other every night. And not for me, thanks. Why not run up to town? Run's the exact word in this case, isn't it? We're both in such a blessed funk. Pull yourself together, Eustace, and let's have another look at the hand. As you like, said Eustace. There's the key. They went into the library and opened the desk. The box was as they had left it on the previous night. What are you waiting for? asked Eustace. I am waiting for you to volunteer to open the lid. However, since you seem to funk it, allow me. There doesn't seem to be the likelihood of any rumpus this morning at all events. He opened the lid and picked out the hand. Cold? asked Eustace. Tepid. A bit below blood heat by the feel. Soft and supple, too. If it's the embalming, it's a sort of embalming I've never seen before. Is it your uncle's hand? Ah, yes. It's his, all right, said Eustace. I should know those long, thin fingers anywhere. Put it back in the box, Saunders. Never mind about the screws. I'll lock the desk so that there'll be no chance of its getting out. We'll compromise by motoring up to town for a week. If we get off soon after lunch, we ought to be at Grantham or Stamford by night. Right, said Saunders. And tomorrow? Ah, oh, well, by tomorrow we shall have forgotten all about this beastly thing. If when the morrow came they had not forgotten, it was certainly true that at the end of the week they were able to tell a very vivid ghost story at the little supper Eustace gave on Halloween. You don't want us to believe that it's true, Mr. Bolsover. How perfectly awful. I'll take my oath on it, and so would Saunders here, wouldn't you, old chap? Any number of oaths, said Saunders. It was a long, thin hand, you know, and it gripped me just like that. Don't, Mr. Saunders, don't. How perfectly horrid. Now tell us another one, I do. Only a really creepy one, please. Here's a pretty mess, said Eustace on the following day, as he threw a letter across the table to Saunders. It's your affair, though. Mrs. Merritt, if I understand it, gives a month's notice. Oh, that's quite absurd on Mrs. Merritt's part, Saunders replied. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Let's see what she says. Dear sir, he read, it is to let you know that I must give you a month's notice as from Tuesday the 13th. For a long time I felt the place too big for me, but when Jane Parfitt and Emma Laidlow go off with scarcely as much as an if you please after frightening the wits out of the other girls, so that they can't turn out of room by themselves or walk alone down the stairs for fear of treading on half-frozen toads or hearing it run along the passages at night, all I can say is that it's no place for me. So I must ask you, Mr. Bolsover, sir, to find a new housekeeper that has no objection to large and lonely houses, which some people do say. Not that I'd believe them for a minute. My poor mother, always having been a Wesleyan, are haunted. Yours faithfully, Elizabeth Merritt. P.S. I should be obliged if you would give my respects to Mr. Saunders. I hope that he won't run no risks with his cold. Saunders, said Eustace, you always had a wonderful way with you in dealing with servants. You mustn't let poor old Merritt go. Of course she shan't go, said Saunders. She's probably only angry for a rise in salary. I'll write to her this morning. No, there's nothing like a personal interview. We've had enough of town. We'll go back tomorrow, and you must work your cold for all it's worth. Don't forget that it's got onto the chest, and will require weeks of feeding up and nursing. All right, I think I can manage Mrs. Merritt. But Mrs. Merritt was more obstinate than he had thought. She was very sorry to hear of Mr. Saunders' cold, and how he lay awake all night in London coughing. Very sorry indeed. She'd change his room for him gladly, and get the south room aired, and wouldn't he have a hot basin of bread and milk lasting at night? But she was afraid that she would have to leave at the end of the month. Try her with an increase of salary, was the advice of Eustace. It was no use. 
Mrs. Merritt was obdurate, though she knew of Mrs. Handyside, who had been housekeeper to Lord Gargrave, who might be glad to come at the salary mentioned. "'What's the matter with the servants, Morton?' asked Eustace that evening when he brought the coffee into the library. "'What's all this about Mrs. Merritt wanting to leave?' "'If you please, sir, I was going to mention it myself. I have a confession to make, sir. When I found you on note asking me to open that desk and take out the box with the rat, I broke the lock, as he told me, and was glad to do it, because I could hear the animal in the box making a great noise, and I thought it wanted food. So I took out the box, sir, and got a cage, and was going to transfer it when the animal got away.' "'What in the world are you talking about? I never wrote any such note.' "'Excuse me, sir, it was a note I picked up here on the floor "'on the day you and Mr Saunders left. "'I have it in me pocket now.' "'It certainly seemed to be in Eustace's handwriting. "'It was written in pencil and began somewhat abruptly. "'Get a hammer, Morton,' he read, "'or some other tool, and break open the lock in the old desk in the library. "'Take out the box that is inside. "'You need not do anything else. "'The lid is already open. "'Eustace pulls over.' "'And you opened the desk?' "'Yes, sir, and I was getting the cage ready. "'The animal hopped out.' "'What animal?' "'The animal inside the box, sir.' What did it look like? Well, sir, I couldn't tell you, said Morton nervously. My back was turned and it was halfway down the room when I looked up. What was its colour? asked Saunders. Black? Oh, no, sir, greyish-white. It crept along in a very funny way, sir. I don't think it had a tail. What did you do then? I tried to catch it, but it was no use. So I set the rat traps and kept the library shut. Then that girl, Emma Laidlow, left the door open and she was cleaning and I think it must have escaped. And you think it was the animal that's been frightening the maids? Well, no, sir, not quite. I said it was, excuse me, sir, a hand that they saw. Emma trod on it once at the bottom of the stairs. She thought then it was an half-frozen toad, only white. And then Parfit was washing up the dishes in the scullery. She wasn't thinking about anything in particular. It was closed on dusk. She took her hands out of the water and was drying them absent-minded like an old roller towel. And she found that she was drying someone else's hand as well, only colder than hers. What nonsense! exclaimed Saunders. Exactly, sir, that's what I told her, but we couldn't get her to stop. You don't believe all this, said Eustace, turning suddenly towards the butler. Me, sir, I know, sir. I've not seen anything. Nor heard anything? Well, sir, if you must know, the bells do ring at odd times, and there's nobody there when we go. When we go round to draw the blinds at night, as often as not, somebody's been there before us. But as I says to Mrs Merritt, a young monkey might do wonderful things, and we all know that Mr Bolsover has had some strange animals about the place. Very well, Morton, that'll do. What do you make of it? asked Saunders when they were alone. I mean, of the letter you said you wrote. Oh, that's simple enough, said Eustace. See the paper it's written on? I stopped using that years ago, but there were a few odd sheets and envelopes left in the old desk. We never fastened up the lid of the box before locking it in. The hand got out, found a pencil, wrote this note, and shoved it through the crack onto the floor, where Morton found it. That's plain as daylight. But the hand couldn't write, couldn't it? You've not seen it do the things I've seen. And he told Saunders more of what had happened at Eastbourne. Well, said Saunders, in that case we have at least an explanation of the legacy. It was the hand which wrote unknown to your uncle that letter to your solicitor, bequeathing itself to you. Your uncle had no more to do with that request than I. In fact, it would seem that he had some idea of this automatic writing and feared it. Then, if it's not my uncle, what is it? I suppose some people might say that a disembodied spirit had got your uncle to educate and prepare a little body for it. Now it's got into that little body and is off on its own. Well, what are we to do? We'll keep our eyes open, said Saunders, and try to catch it. If we can't do that, we shall have to wait till the belly clockwork runs down. After all, it is flesh and blood and can't live forever. For two days, nothing happened. Then Saunders saw it sliding down the banister in the hall. He was taken unawares and lost a full second before he started in pursuit, only to find that the thing had escaped him. 
Three days later, Eustace, writing alone in the library at night, saw it sitting on an open book at the other end of the room. The fingers crept over the page, feeling the print as if it were reading, but before he had time to get up from his seat, it had taken the alarm and was pulling itself up the curtains. Eustace watched it grimly as it hung on to the cornice with three fingers, flicking thumb and forefinger at him in an expression of scornful derision. "'I know what I'll do,' he said. "'If I only get it into the open, I'll set the dogs on it.' He spoke to Saunders of the suggestion. "'It's a jolly good idea,' he said. "'Only we won't wait till we find it out of doors. We'll get the dogs. There are two terriers and the underkeeper's Irish mongrel that's on to rats like a flash. Your spaniel has not got spirit enough for this sort of game.' They brought the dogs into the house, and the keeper's Irish mongrel chewed up the slippers and the terriers tripped up Morton as he waited at table. But all three were welcome. Even false security is better than no security at all. For a fortnight nothing happened. Then the hand was caught, not by the dogs, but by Mrs. Merritt's grey parrot. The bird was in the habit of periodically removing the pins that kept its seed and water tins in place, and of escaping through the holes in the side of the cage. When once at liberty, Peter would show no inclination to return, and would often be about the house for days. Now, after six consecutive weeks of captivity, Peter had again discovered a new means of unloosing his bolts and was at large, exploring the tapestried forests of the curtains, and singing songs in praise of liberty from cornice and picture rail. "'It's no use your trying to catch him,' said Eustace to Mrs. Merritt, as she came into the study one afternoon toward dusk with a stepladder. "'You'd much better leave Peter alone. Starve him to surrender, Mrs. Merritt, and don't leave bananas and seed about for him to peck at when he fancies he's hungry. You're far too soft-hearted.' "'Well, sir, I see he's right out of reach now on that picture rail, "'so if you wouldn't mind closing the door so when you leave the room, "'I'll bring his cage in tonight and put some meat inside it. "'He's that fond of meat. "'That does make him pull out his feathers to suck the quills. "'They do say that if you cook... "'Never mind, Mrs Merritt,' said Eustace, who was busy writing. "'That'll do. I'll keep an eye on the bird.' "'There was silence in the room, unbroken, "'but for the continuous whisper of his pen. "'Scratch poor Peter,' said the bird. "'Scratch poor old Peter.' Be quiet, you beastly bird. Poor old Peter. Scratch poor Peter, do. I'm more likely to wring your neck if I get hold of you. He looked up at the picture rail, and there was the hand holding on to a hook with three fingers and slowly scratching the head of the parrot with the fourth. Eustace ran to the bell and pressed it hard, then across to the window, which he closed with a bang. Frightened by the noise, the parrot shook its wing preparatory to flight, and as it did so, the fingers of the hand got hold of it by the throat. There was a shrill scream from Peter as he fluttered across the room, wheeling round in circles that ever descended, borne down under the weight that clung to him. The bird dropped at last quite suddenly, and Eustace saw fingers and feathers rolled into an inextricable mass on the floor. The struggle abruptly ceased as finger and thumb squeezed the neck. The bird's eyes rolled up to show the whites, and there was a faint, half-choked gurgle. But before the fingers had time to loose their hold, Eustace had them in his own. "'Send Mr. Saunders here at once,' he said to the maid, who came in answer to the bell. "'Tell him I want him immediately.' Then he went with a hand to the fire. There was a ragged gash across the back where the bird's beak had torn it, but no blood oozed from the wound. He noticed with disgust that the nails had grown long and discoloured. "'I'll burn the beastly thing,' he said. But he could not burn it. He tried to throw it into the flames, but his own hands, as if restrained by some old primitive feeling, would not let him and so Saunders found him, pale and irresolute, with a hand still clasped tightly in his fingers. "'I've got it at last,' he said in a tone of triumph. "'Good. Let's have a look at it.' "'Not when it's loose. Get me some nails and hammer on a board of some sort.' "'Can you hold it all right?' "'Yes, the thing's quite limp. 
tired out with throttling poor Peter, I should say. And now, said Saunders, when he returned with the things, what are we going to do? Drive a nail through it first so that it can't get away, then we can take our time over examining it. Do it yourself, said Saunders. I don't mind helping you with guinea pigs occasionally, when there's nothing to be learned, partly because I don't fear a guinea pig's revenge. This thing's different. All right, you miserable skunk. I won't forget the way you've stood by me. He took up a nail, and before Saunders had realised what he was doing, had driven it through the hand, deep into the board. Oh, my aunt! he giggled hysterically. Look at it now! For the hand was writhing in agonised contortions, squirming and wriggling upon the nail like a worm upon the hook. Well, said Saunders, you've done it now. I'll leave you to examine it. Don't go in heaven's name. Cover it up, man, cover it up. Shove a cloth over it, here. And he pulled off the antimacassar from the back of a chair and wrapped the board in it. I get the keys from my pocket and open the safe. Chuck the other things out. Oh, Lord, it's getting itself into frightful knots, and open it quick. He threw the thing in and banged the door. Well, keep it there till it dies, he said. May I burn in hell if I ever open the door of that safe again. Mrs. Merrick departed at the end of the month. Her successor certainly was more successful in the management of the servants. Early in her rule, she declared that she would stand no nonsense, and gossip soon withered and died. Eustace Bullsover went back to his old way of life. Old habits crept over and covered his new experience. He was, if anything, less morose, and showed a greater inclination to take his natural part in country society. "'I shouldn't be surprised to be married one of these days,' said Saunders. "'Well, I mean no hurry for such an event. I know Eustace far too well for the future of Mrs. Bullsover to like me. It'll be the same old story again. A long friendship slowly made, marriage, and a long friendship quickly forgotten.' Chapter 4 But Eustace Bolsover did not follow the advice of his uncle and marry. He was too fond of old slippers and tobacco. The cooking, too, under Mrs. Handyside's management was excellent, and she seemed, too, to have a heaven-sent faculty in knowing when to stop dusting. Little by little the old life resumed its old power. Then came the burglary. The men, it was said, broke into the house by way of the conservatory. It was really little more than an attempt for they only succeeded in carrying away a few pieces of plate from the pantry. The safe in the study were certainly found open and empty, but as Mr. Bolsover informed the police inspector, he had kept nothing of value in it during the last six months. "'Then you were lucky to get off so easily, sir,' the man replied. "'By the way, they have gone about their business, or should say they are experienced scraxmen. They must have caught the alarm when they were just beginning their evening's work.' "'Yes,' said Eustace. "'I suppose I am lucky.' Oh, "'I have no doubt.' said the inspector, that we shall be able to trace the men. I've said that they must have been old hands at the game. The way they got in and opened the safe shows that. But there's one little thing that puzzles me. One of them was careless enough not to wear gloves, and I'm bothered if I know what he was trying to do. I've traced his finger marks on the new varnish and the window sashes in every one of the downstairs rooms. They are very distinctive ones, too. Right hand or left, or both? asked Eustace. Oh, right every time, that's the funny thing. He must have been a foolhardy fellow, and I rather think it was him that wrote that. He took out a slip of paper from his pocket. That's what he wrote, sir. I've got it, useless Bolsover, but I'll be back before long. Some jailbird just escaped, I suppose. It'll make it all the easier for us to trace him. Do you know the writing, sir? No, said Eustace. It's not the writing of anyone I know. I'm not going to stay here any longer, said Eustace to Saunders at luncheon. I've got on far better during the last six months than ever I expected. I'm not going to run the risk of seeing that thing again. I shall go up to town this afternoon, get Morton to put my things together and join me with the car at Brighton on the day after tomorrow, and bring the proofs of those two papers with you. We'll run over them together. How long are you going to be away? I can't say for certain, but be prepared to stay for some time. We have stuck to work pretty closely through the summer, and I for one need a holiday. 
I'll engage the rooms at Brighton. You'll find it best to break the journey at Hitchin. I'll wire to you there at the Crown to tell you the Brighton dress. The house he chose at Brighton was in a terrace. He had been there before. It was kept by his old college gyp, a man of discreet silence who was admirably partnered by an excellent cook. The rooms were on the first floor. The two bedrooms were at the back and opened out of each other. Saunders can have the smaller one, though it is the only one with a fireplace, he said. I'll stick to the larger of the two, since it's got a bathroom adjoining. I wonder what time he'll arrive with the car. Saunders came about seven, cold and cross and dirty. We'll light the fire in the dining room, said Eustace. And get Prince to unpack some of the things while we're at dinner. What were the roads like? Rotten, swimming with mud, and a beastly cold wind against us all day. And this is July, dear old England. Yes, said Eustace. I think we might do worse than leave dear old England for a few months. They turned in soon after twelve. You oughtn't to feel cold, Saunders, said Eustace, when you can afford to sport a great catskin-lined coat like this. You do yourself very well, all things considered. Look at those gloves, for instance. Who could possibly feel cold when wearing them? They are far too clumsy, though, for driving. Try them on and see. And he tossed them through the door onto Eustace's bed and went on with his unpacking. A minute later he heard a shrill cry of terror. Oh, Lord, he heard. It's in the glove. Quick, Saunders, quick. Then came a smacking thud. Eustace had thrown it from him. I've chucked it into the bathroom, he gasped. It's hit the wall and fallen into the bath. Come now if you want to help. Saunders, with a lighted candle in his hand, looked over the edge of the bath. There it was, old and maimed, dumb and blind, with a ragged hole in the middle, crawling, staggering, trying to creep up the slippery sides, only to fall back helpless. Stay there, said Saunders. I'll empty a collar box or something and we'll jam it in. It can't cut out while I'm away. Yes, it can, shouted Eustace. It's getting out now. It's climbing up the plug chain. No, you brute, you filthy brute, you don't. Come back, Saunders. It's getting away from me. I can't hold it. It's all slippery. Curse its claw. Shut the window, you idiot. The top two as well as the bottom. You utter idiot. It's got out. There was a sound of something dropping onto the hard flagstones below, and Eustace fell back, fainting. For a fortnight he was ill. I do know what to make of it the doctor said to Saunders. I can only suppose that Mr. Bolsover has suffered some great emotional shock. You'd better let me send someone to help you nurse him, and by all means indulge that whim of his never to be left alone in the dark. I would keep a light burning all night if I were you, but he must have more fresh air. It's perfectly absurd, this hatred of open windows. Eustace, however, would have no one with him but Saunders. I don't want the other men, he said. Let's smuggle it in somehow. I know they would. Don't worry about it, old chap. This sort of thing can't go on indefinitely. You know, I saw it this time as well as you. It wasn't half so active. It won't go on living much longer, especially after that fall. I heard it hit the flags myself. As soon as you're a bit stronger, we'll leave this place, not bag and baggage, but with only the clothes on our backs, so that it won't be able to hide anywhere. We'll escape it that way. We won't give any address, and we won't have any parcels sent after us. Cheer up, Eustace. You'll be well enough to leave in a day or two. The doctor says I can take you out in a chair tomorrow. What have I done? asked Eustace. Why does it come after me? I'm no worse than other men. I'm no worse than you, Saunders. You know I'm not. It was you who were at the bottom of that dirty business in San Diego, and that was fifteen years ago. It's not that, of course, said Saunders. We are in the twentieth century, and even the parsons have dropped the idea of your old sins finding you out. Before you caught the hand in the library, it was filled with pure malevolence, to you and all mankind. After you were spiked it through with that nail, it naturally forgot about other people and concentrated its attention on you. It was shut up in that safe, you know, for nearly six months. That gives plenty of time for thinking of revenge. Eustace Bolsover would not leave his room, but he thought there might be something in Saunders' suggestion to leave Brighton without notice. He began rapidly to regain his strength. 
We'll go on the 1st of September, he said. The evening of August the 31st was oppressively warm. Though at midday the windows had been wide open, they had been shut an hour or so before dusk. Mrs Prince had long since ceased to wonder at the strange habits of the gentlemen on the first floor. Soon after their arrival she had been told to take down the heavy window curtains in the two bedrooms, and day by day the rooms had seemed to grow more bare. Nothing was left lying about. Mr Borsover doesn't like to have any place where dirt can collect, Saunders had said as an excuse. He likes to see into all the corners of the room. Could I open the window just a little, he said to Eustace that evening. We're simply roasting in here, you know. No, leave well alone. We're not a couple of boarding school misses fresh from a course of hygiene lectures. Get the chessboard out. He sat down and played. At ten o'clock, Mrs. Prince came to the door with a note. I'm sorry I didn't bring it before, she said, but it was left in the letter box. Open it, Saunders, and see if it wants answering. It was very brief. There was neither address nor signature. Will eleven o'clock tonight be suitable for our last appointment? Who is it from? asked Balthaver. It was meant for me, said Saunders. There's no answer, Mrs. Prince, and he put the paper into his pocket. A dunning letter from a tailor. I suppose he must have got wind of our leaving. It was a clever lie, and Eustace asked no more questions. They went on with their game. On the landing outside, Saunders could hear the grandfather's clock whispering the seconds, blurting out the quarter hours. Check, said Eustace. The clock struck eleven. At the same time, there was a gentle knocking on the door. It seemed to come from the bottom panel. Who's there? asked Eustace. There was no answer. Mrs. Prince, is that you? She is up above, said Saunders. I can hear her walking about the room. Then lock the door, bolt it too. You'll move, Saunders. While Saunders sat with his eyes on the chessboard, Eustace walked over to the window and examined the fastenings. He did the same in Saunders' room and the bathroom. There were no doors between the three rooms, or he would have shut and locked them too. Now, Saunders, he said, don't stay all night over your move. I've had time to smoke one cigarette already. It's bad to keep an invalid waiting. There's only one possible thing for you to do. What was that? The ivy blowing against the window. There, it's your move now, Eustace. It wasn't the ivy, you idiot. It was someone tapping at the window. And he pulled up the blind. On the outer side of the window, clinging to the sash, was the hand. What is it that it's holding? It's a pocket knife. It's going to try to open the window by pushing back the fastener with the blade. Well, let it try, said Eustace. Those fasteners screw down. It can't be opened that way. Anyway, we'll close the shutters. It's your move, Saunders, I've played. But Saunders found it impossible to fix his attention on the game. He could not understand Eustace, who seemed all at once to have lost his fear. Will you say to some wine? he asked. You seem to be taking things cruelly, but I don't mind confessing that I am in a blessed funk. You've no need to be. There's nothing supernatural about that hand, Saunders. I mean, it seems to be governed by the laws of time and space. It's not the sort of thing that vanishes into thin air or slides through oaken doors. And since that's so, I defy it to get in here. We'll leave the place in the morning. I, for one, have bottomed the depths of fear. Fill your glass, man. The windows are all shuttered. The door is locked and bolted. Pledge me my uncle, Adrian. Drink, man. What are you waiting for? Saunders was standing with his glass half raised. It can get in, he said hoarsely. Yeah, it can get in. We've forgotten. There's the fireplace in my bedroom. It'll come down the chimney. Quick, cried Eustace as he rushed into the other room. We haven't a minute to lose. What can we do? Light the fire, Saunders. Give me a match, quick. They must be all in the other room. I'll get them. Hurry, man, for goodness sake. Look in the bookcase. Look in the bathroom. Here, come stand here. I'll look. Be quick, shouted Saunders. I can hear something. Then plug a sheet from your bed up the chimney. No, here's a match. He found one at last that had slipped into a crack on the floor. Here's the fire laid. Good, but it may not burn. I know the oil from that old reading lamp and this cotton wool. Now the match. Quick, pull the sheet away, you fool. We don't want it now. 
There was a great war from the grate as the flames shot up. Saunders had been a fraction of a second too late with the sheet. The oil had fallen onto it. It, too, was burning. "'The whole place will be on fire!' cried Eustace as he tried to beat out the flames with the blanket. "'It's no good. I can't manage it. You must open the door, Saunders, and get help!' Saunders ran to the door and fumbled with the bolts. The key was stiff in the lock. "'Hurry!' shouted Eustace. "'The whole place is ablaze!' The key turned in the lock at last. For half a second Saunders stopped to look back. Afterwards, he could never be quite sure as to what he had seen. But at the time, he thought that something black and charred was creeping slowly, very slowly, from the mass of flames toward Eustace Bolsover. For a moment he thought of returning to his friend, but the noise and the smell of the burning sent him running down the passage, crying, "'Fire! Fire!' He rushed to the telephone to summon help, and then back to the bathroom. He should have thought of that before, for water. As he burst upon the bedroom door, there came a scream of terror, which ended suddenly, and then the sound of a heavy fall. This is the story which I heard on successive Saturday evenings from the senior mathematical master at a second-rate suburban school, for Saunders has had to earn a living in a way which other men might reckon less congenial than his old manner of life. I had mentioned by chance the name of Adrian Balthover, and wondered at the time why he changed the conversation with such unusual abruptness. A week later Saunders began to tell me something of his own history, sordid enough, though shielded with a reserve I could well understand, for he had had to cover not only his failings but those of a dead friend. Of the final tragedy he was at first especially loath to speak, and it was only gradually that I was able to piece together the narrative of the preceding pages. Saunders was reluctant to draw any conclusions. At one time he thought that the fingered beast had been animated by the spirit of Sigismund Balsover, a sinister 18th-century ancestor who, according to legend, built and worshipped in the ugly pagan temple that overlooked the lake. At another time Saunders believed the spirit to belong to a man whom Eustace had once employed as a laboratory assistant. "'Black-haired, spiteful little brute,' he said, who died cursing his doctor because the fellow couldn't help him to live to settle some paltry score with Balsover. From the point of view of direct contemporary evidence, Saunders' story is practically uncorroborated. All the letters mentioned in the narrative were destroyed, with the exception of the last note which Eustace received, or rather which he would have received had not Saunders intercepted it. That I have seen myself. The handwriting was thin and shaky, the handwriting of an old man. I remember the Greek E was used in appointment. The little thing that amused me at the time was that Saunders seemed to keep the note pressed between the pages of his Bible. I had seen Adrian Bolsover once. Saunders, I learned to know well. It was by chance, however, and not by design, that I met the third person of the story, Morton the butler. Saunders and I were walking in the zoological garden one Sunday afternoon when he called my attention to the old man who was standing before the door of the reptile house. "'Why, Martin,' he said, clapping him on the back, "'how is the world treating you?' "'Poorly, Mr Saunders,' said the old fellow, though his face lighted up at the greeting. The winter's dragged terribly nowadays. Don't seem no summers or springs. You haven't found what you're looking for, I suppose? No, sir, not yet. But I shall some day. I always told them Mr. Bolsover kept some queer animals. And what is he looking for? I asked when we had parted from him. A beast with five fingers, said Saunders. It's afternoon since he's been in the reptile house. I suppose it'll be a reptile with a hand. Next week will be a monkey with practically no body. Poor old chap is a born materialist. Quick coincidence, by the way, that you should have known Adrian Bolsover and that you should have received a blessing at his hand. Has it brought you any luck? No, 
I answered slowly, as I looked back over a life of inconspicuous failure. I don't think it has. It was his right hand, you know. For more supernatural crime thrillers, find the Lawn Turner series on Audible.